turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. We've come to the ninth chapter of this first book of the Bible. There's an insert with the text there for you, as well as an outline. I want to thank Dr. Ansby Rose for bringing the Dort University Wind Symphony to Heritage and Redeemer this weekend. Um, Heritage sponsored a concert last night in the gymnasium. It was superb. Then, of course, we had different ensembles uh, assisting in our worship this morning. It's a great opportunity to be blessed. I shared with them earlier because the whole band was here. They have to leave to go to New Mexico within the next 15 minutes or so. But they, uh, I shared with some of the guys in the group that 31 years ago, I was 19, I signed up. I can't play any instruments, but I saw that the Moody Symphonic Band was going to travel to Florida during spring break. So I thought, I can, I can help with the road crew duties. So I talked to a buddy of mine who had equal amount of no musical talent, and we signed up. We didn't realize, however, that to go on the spring tour, you had to help the band on the winter tour, and that one took you to Iowa. At any rate, when I was sitting on the bus lamenting my misfortune and misjudging Florida, I looked across, no, right in front of me, and there was a young woman there. And we got married about 18 months later. So I told the guys in the band that this could be the best trip of your life. So enjoy. I don't know how many took me serious, but it worked out really well for me. Really well. Today we are finding ourselves uh, studying Genesis 9, 1 through 17. This is an important passage in the midst of all sorts of important passages because it brings back around um, commitments that God makes to Noah. The first part of those commitments are a covenant that he makes with Noah. It's very specific. It's redemptive in its focus. It's about salvation. It's about the salvation of Noah and his family. It's a picture of Christ. Uh, the flood comes and, if you will, ratifies this whole covenant that God makes with Noah. But now as he comes off the ark, God makes more commitments. And this now takes on a universal impact. This has to do with his commitment towards uh, the world, the creation. It's, it's a wider uh, application of what is promised through Noah. This has ramifications for everyday living timelessly uh, because there will be a recapitulation of the promises in Genesis 1 or the commands of God for mankind and creation back in Genesis 1. But now it's on the other side of the fall. Sin is entered. So God makes enhancements, if you will, to this mandate that's called the cultural mandate for mankind. You'll see how it unfolds as we walk through the passage together, but it's an important foundational passage for understanding how we are to live according to God's design, even though there's sin now involved. God makes, a, makes provision for this. Here now as I read God's holy word, this is Genesis 9, 1 through 17. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your life, blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. 
Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. In you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is set in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, we confess this to be the word of God that I've just read. It was not sent nor delivered by human will, but rather Moses was moved and guided by the Holy Spirit and spoke from you. In light of the inspiration and the authority of your word, we seek to understand and apply what is taught here. O Lord, may this passage be impressed upon our hearts and our minds that we might seek to live accordingly for the glory of your name. I pray this in Jesus. Amen. What we have here in this passage It's not a complete recreation by any means, but it is definitely a renewal of the world order with some modifications and some enhancements, we might say, that take into account the sinfulness of man that has now come in. The corrupted relationship man has with creation, God sets things or renews things in a straightforward way. In light of what has happened in the past, because of sinful man, God now gives instruction, re-instruction, with some modifications. We had a car once that was normally a very reliable make and model, a Toyota Camry. But as for the 2007 model of the Camry, particularly with the four-cylinder engine, there was a flaw in the engine that caused it to start burning oil much earlier than a car should start to burn oil. It had to do with the length of the rods and the piston rings for anyone who's really wondering what caused it. They figured it out, but not right away took a few years for complaints to start to come in. Because overall, this is an excellent car. It doesn't last forever, no car does, but it does pretty well. But with this flaw, it's severely shortened its lifespan. I remember checking the oil one time. It was almost completely dry, and I just changed the oil maybe a month before, putting four new quarts in it. Almost none left. Knew something was wrong, and I looked up the problem and discovered this particular year and model had this issue. Well, Toyota figured it out and in 2011 made an an adjustment with the models going forward. They addressed the problem specifically, longer rods and better rings. 
didn't make the car perfect, but it definitely helped with the issue that was there before. That modification gave longer life to the newer models that came out. Those models never lived forever, but they definitely were better now that that particular situation had been addressed. I think there's some parallel here in that we have the created world fall into sin. And things descended and degenerated rapidly. People living long lives and rampant murder running loose on the earth before the time of the flood. Now, when he brings the judgment of the flood and restarts things, renews things, he gives the mandate that was given back at the creation. But now in light of the fact that sin had entered, and he makes some commitments, God always showing his, at least his common grace to, every, to the whole earth. But he shows specific grace to Noah and his family, picturing that redemptive grace we can have in Christ, with Noah as a Christ figure, as the ark as a Christ figure. But then it even expands that there will be blessings. They're temporal, but they're real blessings that the whole of the earth will, will now experience. And what we have in these verses is some ordering God does to account for the flaws that were there before. It doesn't mean man will live forever in eternity with him on the basis of this blessing he gives towards the end of Genesis 9, but these modifications will certainly prolong things, give more opportunity, if you will, for the expression of God's saving grace. It would certainly be an enhancement to have this instruction God gives, and it's, it's very incumbent upon us to be, pay close attention to God's order for creation in what he gives as instruction here. We'll notice similar language, and we'll notice that he makes some additions to account for the fact of sinfulness that has come in. Genesis, according to the commentator Steinman, presents the flood not only as a destructive force that extinguished life, but also as a creative force that brings a new order to the world, an order that would be needed now because of sin's entrance. We receive continued guidance from God's renewal and bolstering of his design for the world after the flood. We see it here. Let's look at verse 1 and verse 7 first, and I want you to see how it is that God renews uh, the mandate, the cultural mandate that he gives to mankind. He uses language that he's used before, before the fall in Genesis 1, and we see God's renewed plan for human flourishing on the earth. Verse 1, and God blessed Noah and his sons. See, he's already speaking through the family again. This has not changed. This marital union is still the way he is going to propagate his plan and his design. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Here, this is a restatement of Genesis 1.28. Listen to Genesis 1.28. God blessed them, talking to Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we have a restatement of that cultural mandate given at creation. God finishes his creation, man being the crowning point of that creation. Mankind is organized in marital relationship. The family, this institution of marriage, begins the family. And this is the foundation that comes out in the rest of the cultural mandate that he gives before the fall. Fruitful and multiply, exercise dominion, be God's representatives. But of course, sin darkens that scene and changed many dynamics. So here, after the flood, God makes some renewed statements. In verse 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What does it mean to be fruitful and multiply? Well, in this context, we would go to Genesis 1, 
when it's first given to understand what fruitfulness means. This is about human flourishing and all connected to the flourishing of humankind. Back in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. Then it kind of explains what that looks like. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the birds, fish, birds, and every living thing. So being fruitful is multifaceted. It, it's, it's getting married, it's multiplying, it's extending the reach of mankind as God's representatives over the earth to be stewards of it, to be managers of it. This is what fruitfulness and human flourishing looks like, to faithfully carry out our human role as God's vice regents on the earth. Be stewards of my creation, of many children, so they can tend to creation on my behalf as well. So we have a reestablishment. Now look at verse 7, because you'll see it again. But now in verse 7, I want you to notice that there's a bit of an additive here. It could be implied in the initial cultural mandate from Genesis 1, but look at the language. Verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Man's propensity so point, at this point was to get together and make up their own little kingdoms. You remember how it happened with Cain and his progeny? And by the time the flood happened, it seemed like man was organized pretty locally against God. So there's an emphasis now on what probably was to be implied. They have to spread out over the whole of the earth. God created everything, so spread out. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Go and flourish. Be human. Fulfill your purpose. Spread out. May the image of God be seen everywhere through mankind in his application of God's call to subdue it. So, we can understand that God's management of his creation is the same after the flood. Human beings are flawed, but it's the same call to, to manage the earth. God's intention for humankind is to be careful stewards of the same after the flood. God's design for humanity was to multiply, flourish. It's the same. But God now is saying and emphasizing, increase greatly. Now, as we continue through the passage, we see there are other additives or enhancements that God makes. Provisions, you might say. Now imagine for a moment, you're given this cultural mandate again, and part of it is subduing creation. But you've been on the ark with animals for a year. Your impression of animals may not be as high as God wants you to have for animals. I mean, these are not all cuddly little, you know, lap dogs, you know, in your recliner. This is all, represents all the created animals and everything's restless. Everyone's restless. And so here it is, God setting the order of things straight again through Noah, through the revelation he gives. This provision for human stewardship is reiterated. It's given more definition now. Steinman said, God is not recreating the earth here. He's transforming it. The new relationship between humans and animals is an indication of this. And we see it unfold here in verse 2 and in verse 3. Look at verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens. Now we can imagine there was some fear of man in animals before, but there is something that changes here by the word of God. It says in verse 2, Upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea into your hand they have been delivered. So they are under your dominion, he says to humankind, but I will, God speaking, put a certain fear, a certain respect in them for mankind so that in their ferocity they won't go after you right away. Now, we have so many safeguards now. We don't 
usually, at least in sub suburbia, you know, we see a coyote, we think we're in the Wild West. Uh, but the fact is, this is not nearly that. In, in those days, you're letting off these animals from the ark, many of whom are probably, they might have been younger when they were put on the ark, and now they're bigger and older and more ferocious. And they might, by natural tendency, look at Noah and his family and think, that's our next meal. And so there's a sense in which you can see the practical reality where God puts a fear of animals, a respect uh, in animals of humankind. Um, so that there's not this just unbridled, un, just unguarded attack from animal, animal kind onto humankind, especially early when this was happening. It's interesting, even in Calvin's day, in the 16th century, there were more uh, notable attacks by animals. I mean, people, known people that were attacked by wild animals. And this is even after God gives this mandate. G, uh, Calvin writing about what's said in Genesis, if God did not wonderfully restrain the fierceness of animals, the human race would be utterly destroyed. If all animal kind just wanted to turn on humanity, especially at these moments when Noah first receives this revelation. In verse 3, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Remember, before the flood, um, they were already keeping livestock. We should not imply by this text that this is the first time people were eating meat. This is now the ability to, or the permission to do so with very careful guidelines and the way we should look at it, our perspective concerning it, a certain management about it. We know in the time of, of Jabal, who was a descendant of Cain, he was a keeper of livestock. Uh, we, we could be certain that they were eating meat before this. But in this iteration, there's a respectful clarity about the use of animals for food. As he reorders things, it reminds people that he's given the gift of life to everything. Mankind is on top of that order, created in God's image. And so we can have use of those animals for our sustenance, for labor. This is okay within the confines of our responsibility to be stewards, but we have to be careful about how we manage this. We have to be respectful, very careful, because God has given life. And so it's all, in some sense, special. Not like man's, but it's special. And so we must realize that. And he gives this explicit instruction concerning this. Man would manage creation, on part, and part of that management would include animal life. Stewardship of creation includes, then, conserving the habitat that the animals live in. Stewardship of creation includes using animals for labor. Stewardship of creation includes eating animals while maintaining their numbers. They're a resource, a renewable resource, that we should be about the task of managing renewal. Every moving thing, verse 3, that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Calvin, once again, talking about our dominion over um, the animals, says this, Men may render animals subservient to their own convenience and may apply them to various uses. Now, when he says it, he never means recklessly. Never means it recklessly. He says further, We may apply them to various uses according to their wishes, their wishes and necessities. That's talking about mankind. Therefore, the fact that oxen become accustomed to bear the yoke that the wildness of horses is so subdued as to cause them to carry a rider, that they receive the pack saddle to bear burdens, that cows give milk and suffer themselves to be milked, that sheep are mute under the hand of the shearer. All these facts are the result of this dominion that we read coming from Genesis 9, which, although greatly diminished, is never entirely abolished. Struggle because we're sinful, but we are to do our best to pursue what God directs us concerning. 
All life comes from God. It's to be respected and cherished. Dominion does not mean destruction, but responsibility, stewardship, management. Francis Schaeffer said, well, the Christian is called to exhibit this dominion. You know, this is a general revelation that God gives about meaning it's applicable to the universe. But only Christians who understand the word, the Spirit's given eyes to see and ears to hear, can really speak to this on the deepest level of how we should take care of these things. This is why Schaefer says, the Christian is called upon to exhibit this dominion. But exhibit it rightly, he says, treating the thing as having value itself, exercising dominion without being destructive. This is the, the way we should follow as believers. Animals, they're allowed to be eaten for food, but not indiscriminately. There are many times that we will see animal life conflicting with some aspect of human flourishing, and so it has to be managed in this way. You know, I was thinking about this when I've heard the argument, a well-meaning argument about how we shouldn't um, eat animals because, uh, because they're created by God and such, and it ignores what God has given us. But it also ignores the reality that when you eat your salad, to make that salad, there are millions of creatures that were killed to eat that salad. The bugs that were killed to keep off of it, the snakes that were cut up by the disc that cut the field or the, the mice or the whatever. I mean, there's nothing you eat where animals are not sacrificed for that eating. We have to just recognize that God's given us a stewardship over this, a carefulness about this, and that much of the impact of the Christian view of this has helped us as we consider how to manage animal life for its flourishing and for human flourishing ultimately. God is clear about this and he gives us this instruction early on in man's existence. Candlish, who I've referred to before, he comments, even the beasts given to man for food are to be objects of certain scrupulous care. They are to be so treated as to preclude the infliction of needless pain. Important insight for us. Now, in giving more explicit instruction about a relationship to animals, there's also another enhancement that God makes that I want you to notice in verse 4 down to verse 6. Now, God will address the most serious of fallen humankind's problems that came up after the fall. You remember almost immediately Cain kills Abel. At least in the biblical text, we're shown how soon after the fall this happens. Murder comes in. The destruction of one made in the image of God. And this is a problem that continues to degenerate over the years leading up to the time of the flood. So here... In the renewal of the new world, God gives an enhanced call to honor human life. He's going to give some modification now to his instruction. Because you will remember when Cain killed Abel, Cain rightly worried that he'd get killed, but God didn't allow him to be killed. We're not given any impression before this passage that there was some provision for dealing with those who were murderers, but just rather that murder kept expanding and multiplying. That's what happens when it's unchecked, when there's no deterrent. Look at verse 4. Again, still talking about animals, but now to help us understand the value of life, and in particular, human life. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. In other words, don't eat, another ani- don't eat an animal like another animal would eat it. There's a carefulness about what you must do to prepare it. Now, this comes into full view during the times of Moses. But for now, this denotes a, a carefulness about how you will go about eating those animals. Why? It says here that you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your life, blood, I will require a reckoning, showing the elevated level of mankind, even over the animals. The emphasis on blood here is meant to show or point to God's gift of life for all creatures. 
human beings. We're not to eat animals like animals eat each other. That's what's on display here. A disregard or disrespect for life offends the giver of life. This is a buildup to a special emphasis. Again, now look at verse 5. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. So now if a murder occurs, God is going to require a reckoning. So we'll have to answer for that. Who's responsible? It says, from every beast I will require it, and from, from man. Man's value is so high to God that any attack on that, by way of killing murder, he will require a reckoning. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Now, to this point, God is just saying the value of life is such, and the value of man, mankind's life is such that he will require a reckoning. But verse 6 is monumental here. Well, how will he require this reckoning? What will there be? Who will be there to provide this reckoning on behalf of God? Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Both animals and humans will be held accountable for taking human life. The violence of Cain's murdering Abel cannot be understated. It just kept multiplying. That's what happens. If a murderer is left, they will continue to murder, and many more people who are created in the image of God will be killed. But we have here in verse 6 the introduction, really, essentially, of human government. You have people acting as God's representatives to, to require a reckoning for murder. And really, you have at the most basic level the purpose of government, to protect human life. And to the degree that a government cannot do this, they're less and less legitimate. I'm not saying they're illegitimate because certainly when Moses is writing at the backdrop of Egypt he just left, or Paul's writing at the backdrop of the Roman Empire, he still makes these statements about human government. But recognize that the strength or the goodness of a government is largely tied to how well they protect human life, innocent human life. And one of the ways in which God is given to deal with the way murder multiplies is this reckoning where the life would be taken from the one who is going out taking lives, murdering. You remember what happened when this was unchecked before the fall. In Genesis 6, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. The violence of Cain just perpetuated. And God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So now we come to verse 6 of our passage in Genesis 9. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. We have a societal call to administer this justice against one who murders, because if left unchecked, they'll murder more. They always do. And by stopping at that murder, it deters others, it brings justice to the person who has done this, and it makes very clear the value of human life. And I realize some will say, at times, well, wait a minute. Someone murders, and then to take their life, that's just more taking of life. That's a lack of recognition of what happens through sinful man when sin is left unchecked. And God thinks so much of human life that it has to be protected by even what we might say as an extreme measure. Candlish, who I referred to earlier, said this, such is the divine warrant for capital punishment, very express and clear, but at the same time, very limited. It is indeed true that this announcement in the verse before us is to be understood as virtually embodying the great charter of all civil authority and sanctioning generally the exercise of that kind of power of which capital punishment is the extreme 
affliction. Again, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. It's a sober reality for sure. It's a sober reality, but it's a clear, it's clearly depicted here for us. Kent Hughes said, Woe to a system that wrongly administers the death penalty. He gives this warning. Woe to a society who allows that to happen. Woe to judges who are culpable to God. God will not be mocked. But to argue against the death penalty on humane grounds is to argue against God's word. It exists precisely because of God's humane concerns, precisely because of God's high view of the image of God that man bears, that he has placed there. So, brothers and sisters, we are to be respecters of all life. We're to be defenders of life also. You know, it's been persuasively argued that much of the moral confusion that we see in Western culture, especially in the United States, that it's a result actually of God's anger and wrath towards us as a whole for the sanctioning of the murders of millions over the last 50 years. The only response is how has God been so gracious to us? Because it says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And there is no accountability that we can see, at least immediately. So perhaps Romans 1 is what is upon us. When Paul warns those who are spurring God's clear revelation about creation, his clear revelation about his lordship, even his revelation about the value of mankind. Paul wrote in Romans, therefore God gave them up. These disrespecters of God's order. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Maybe that's where all the confusion and dysphoria comes from. We're culture under terrible judgment. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, Paul goes on, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And then Paul says, because of that status towards God, which you have to say, a culture that so degrades human life as we do, certainly thinks more of the creature than the creator. We could do what we want, never mind what the creator says. So just keep killing them so we can live the life that we want to live. And it says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. There's a, there's a call to repentance here with all the confusion. And it will start with the people of God, no doubt, who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Because the passage says what it says, and God will not be mocked. If he says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now as we continue in the passage, we will find that the bulk of the passage is a beautiful statement of God's great grace to everything and everyone. I don't mean saving grace here. This is more back to what we spoke of in the time of Cain, when God granted so many blessings to mankind, even though they didn't acknowledge him. Now we're talking about God's common grace applied after the flood. And all of this is a setup, ultimately, to provide for the seed of the woman to come and bring the second Adam. So it's not that there's no salvation concern here, but that's isolated on those who are in that second Adam. Now it's just a picture of the earth given a certain regularity, a certain certainty about it, so that this plan of God can unfold and that many people will experience that kindness of God, that patience of God, even if it's short-lived, because everyone has to face a judgment. 
In fact, God promises an ultimate judgment that we hopefully live long enough to appreciate. If you don't know him, I hope God keeps you alive long enough that you would repent of your sins and turn to him. That's the great grace he's given right now. If you can even hear what I'm saying, you don't believe. This is God's gift to you. Don't spurn the call to the gospel to turn to Christ. And this is this common blessing we see that God gives by his preserving of humanity. This is why some call this part of God's covenant the covenant of preservation with Noah. Look at verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. You see the expansion? Back in Genesis 3, it was just with Noah, and then those associated with Noah. Now, this is everybody in this renewed earth. God gives his covenant commitment through Noah, and he does it in grand fashion. I established my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Verse 9, verse 10. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, livestock, and so forth. This is a, a preservation that God promises. Verse 11. I established my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now he promises a final consummation and it becomes clear. But he won't do so by flood again. It'll hold things pretty steady, just like he said to Noah, right as Noah was leaving the ark. Seed time and harvest, you can count on these things. Now he's saying something similar here. I'll not send a flood again to destroy the earth. And he's going to ratify this covenant, make it official with a sign, an actual sign that they can see and remember, and that he can remember by, again, speaking anthropomorphically. Verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I don't know about you, but every time I see a rainbow, I'm drawn to the grace of God. Now, as a believer, I'm drawn to the saving grace of God. But I want to think in general that he preserved the earth, and he's preserving it. And this is a reminder of God's sovereignty over the earth to bring that preservation. Derek Kidner said it well. The obvious glory of the rainbow against the gloom of the cloud seems enough to make a token of grace. You know, a storm and clouds bring out the beauty of the rainbow that reminds us of God's sustaining, preserving grace. Kidner goes on, even without the reflection that arises from the conjunction of the sun and storm as of mercy and judgment. So a covenant sign here, it's designed to strengthen our belief, our faith. That's the reason he gives these signs. And it's never divorced from explanation about what it means. Look at verse 14 of our passage. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, God says of himself, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. You know, there's nothing like a Midwest storm that comes upon you. Um, they're, they're shocking if you come from a different part of the country how fast these things come up. Back where I grew up, they could tell you like two days ahead about what time it would rain in a certain day. We're coming up on the, on the months now where you don't know when it's going to happen. And it's, it, we're much better now than when I was growing up as far as their ability for meteorologists to figure it out. But you know how fast it happens here. Beautiful and sunny, and then it's black and green, and there's hail coming down. It's a terrible feeling. The moments you're in it, you wonder if there's a tornado in this or there's destruction and wind and hail and all the things that happen. And then as quick as it came, it's away. And you have a relief that it's gone. And then the rainbow shows. 
in the sense that it's over now. This is the, the sense that we get here in this passage. The storm clouds have subsided. The flood is gone. And God sends a rainbow to say, I will never destroy the earth this way again. So there's time. Uh, there, and he's going to hold things steady. This is his promise. Verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. What a promise of common grace to the earth restored here. And he says to Noah in verse 17, personally to Noah now, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between, established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. It's a beautiful bookend to the very personal covenant that he makes with Noah. And now he speaks of this general preservation. Now, I would say this in a concluding thought with this very foundational passage. When we hear it, as a general audience, believers and unbelievers would listen to this, all mankind should see the rainbow and be called to acknowledge the God of the universe who made a promise of preservation. But all mankind cannot stop there with that general truth that God gives. It, we must be pointed to the depth of what has brought us to the point of Genesis 9. The sinfulness that has entered. Our need to be reconciled with God because we are under the fallen Adam. God's promise in Genesis 3 to send a seed from the woman to be the Messiah, to be the second Adam, that we find our salvation and just like people found it in Noah on the ark. That's the message you can't miss here. It's true what he says about the earth and anyone could acknowledge some of these things as regular. Someone might even say, yeah, I believe a God did that. But that's not enough. You have to be reconciled to the God who did all this. And so the call of these things on the general level really requires us to think on a deeper level and appreciate what God has done personally for us in rescuing us from his judgment. I want to close by reading what the apostle Peter wrote. And he was writing in this exact context of thinking about being the, God being the great creator and how he brought the flood and he'll bring another judgment and now we have this warning before us, a call to come to salvation in Christ. Peter said, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. He's accounting for the fact that God has kept his promise those many thousands of years later. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, though, Peter says, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. They're enjoying the regularity of God's promise, but they're not acknowledging that he's a creator of all these things. And Peter says, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged, flooded with water, and perished. But by the same word, Peter says, by the same word, the same word of God, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. It won't be for water. They're stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But when that day of destruction comes, like Jesus warns, we should not be like the people in Noah's day who were surprised by it. No surprises. That judgment's coming. Either when you die, a millisecond later, or when he comes again, that day of judgment will come. And the only escape is that you find yourself in his ark. The ark of salvation, which is Christ. Who is Christ? Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Oh Lord, refresh us with the message of your word that we have heard. Where we have become warped in our understanding because of the world's mistakes. 
and misjudgments, where we become convoluted or wishy-washy in our understanding of creation as your word has laid it out for us. Or maybe we become erroneous in our thinking about who we are as human beings in our nature, unrealistic, maybe even denying the truth of the depth of the sin that we possess. Lord, please correct and shape us by your holy word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.